This is a Cato Special Podcast. I'm Caleb Brown. The phrase, papers please, is meant to remind us of totalitarian states of old, determining who is a member of the in-group, and more importantly, who is a member of the out-group. Today, there may be no need to ask even for papers. Surveillance technology can track you from home to office and back, and they're hardly foolproof. Jim Harper is author of the new Cato paper, The New National ID, out today. I can remember when the idea of a national ID card was just anathema to most Americans, but now it seems uh, like it, depending on how you it's presented or in what manner in which it's uh, created, it people just don't seem to have a problem with it. There are sort of two things going on. One is that the DHS is pressing, pressing, pressing for the implementation of Real ID, the national ID card that was created by a law that passed in 2005. Signs at the airports tell people they're going to have to have one of these things before too long. And routinely over time, they change the date, but they goad states into complying with the national ID law. And they're progressing in that way. The other thing happening is more concerning, really, is that lots of other systems are being put in place that together are going to form what I'm calling the new national ID. That's an ID that doesn't even really rely on a card. Uh, it'll include facial recognition and other biometric identifiers possibly so that you don't even have to be asked to show an ID, but you'll be tracked as you move around in society. So the classic opposition to a national ID card is fading because DHS is avoiding the term national ID and people are getting on board around the country, states really, and the new national ID, a cardless ID system, uh, is being implemented through multiple programs coming together. Now, I spoke with uh, a young lady who works at uh, Georgetown working on this issue, the idea of facial recognition, and it has many applications. Um, casinos have used it to identify problem gamblers, people who want to be identified as problem gamblers. Uh, some retailers have used it to identify people that are they, they believe are likely, very likely to shoplift uh, in their stores. Uh, China appears to be really ramping up systems to in order to track pretty much everybody in cities. Uh, why is that particularly troubling for the United States government, who we all know does its best to make sure that things aren't abused? Why is that particularly troubling here? It does its level best, but it's not all that good at it. We have to think about these systems in terms of what may happen in the future. The technology can be used for good and bad. You make the case well that there are good uses of it, keeping gamblers out of the casinos. Uh, plenty of commercial opportunities, plenty of enjoyments will be available thanks to facial recognition. Take the example of securing houses or office buildings. Uh, you might be able to get into your house thanks to facial recognition even though you've got your hands full of groceries uh, and keep everybody else out at the same time. But the concerning uses are the ones that aren't voluntary. The Chinese government is reportedly using facial recognition to monitor people in dissident communities, uh, people who are religious minorities and ethnic minorities, even to the point where they are getting alerted according to reports when people that they're concerned about move outside of the districts in, a, in cities where they're expected and entitled to be. Imagine future uses of facial recognition where there's actually a, a penalty imposed on people either 
executively, that is spontaneously by security agencies or through through ordinary criminal punishment, that you're restricted to to a certain area. A whole new array of punishments could be could be enabled by facial recognition. So we should be quite concerned about how it's used, particularly in the coercive environment we deal with with governments. So some people have criminal records. Those records are created in courts. Uh, they have there's an adversarial process that you go through to determine whether or not you've committed a crime. The kinds of things that could be uh, could stick to your ID, uh, however, whatever systems come together to form the, your national your new national ID. There's no real uh, adjudication of what is going into your file and what isn't. And it's already been used to keep Americans from flying, which for many Americans can be uh, crippling to their careers and their ability to enjoy life. The new national ID has elements of both Orwell and Kafka. Orwell is the all-seeing, all-monitoring system that we can imagine, though we hope it doesn't happen. We've got to act as though it could and set our policies because these technologies can be used for bad just like good. But Kafka is there too because in the new national ID system, you don't know when your face is being recognized. You don't know when your license plate is being read by a reader to track by strong inference uh, where you're traveling in your car. And you don't know what notations are going into that file Uh, So you don't know if they're going to try to come and swoop you up because you've got an unpaid parking ticket or swoop you up because you got on the wrong side of a certain politician or a certain uh, official in a security agency. You know, all these systems have come together to form something that is uh, like a national ID card, but without the card and without your ability to sort of, you know, you can request your FBI file. Your criminal record is a public record, but this record, it's whatever some agencies say it is. It's whatever some agencies say it is. And and the systems we're looking at now at the airports are a harbinger, if we allow them, of things to come. Uh, that is, when you're, tr- when you're flying, they look into you and they decide whether or not you're allowed to fly. That's why when you go to the airport, you need to show ID because they have a list of people that they've decided are, are people of concern that they're going to try to block from, from traveling. Uh, other forms of travel – other activities you may do that the government regulates, uh, they may use this new national ID system, a more Kafka-esque system, to make determinations that you're not allowed to access it. Uh, you're not allowed to go there. The quaint era of papers, please. Now, papers, please connotes a really horrible era, but it's quaint because you knew when you were getting checked out, a person came up to you and asked you to see your papers. Anymore, you're not going to necessarily know when you're being checked out. You're not going to know what data is being collected about your movements and your locations and who you're there with, uh, what you've attended, what church you go to, what political uh, events you go to. Uh, The files will develop without your knowledge, and so you won't get that natural announcement that you're being monitored the way you got in the Papers, Please era. That means that a lot of people will uh, self-curtail their freedoms. They'll say – Eh, I was going to go to that event, but they might be watching. I was going to say that thing. I was going to travel there, but eh, uh, I'm under observation all the time. So the the systems that are coming together, many through state policies, not just through federal policy, uh, are 
an opportunity at some future point, should there be a, a even more severe degradation in the, in our politics, to a turnkey national identity system like China is debuting right now. What kind of information sharing is likely between states and the feds and among agencies within states and the federal government? Well, there are programs in place and, and, and these are things we've looked at that are creating pathways for information sharing. The E-Verify mandate that some states have adopted, it's been proposed nationally but not adopted. Some states have adopted an E-Verify mandate. That's federal background checks for employment. Um, there's a system called Records and Information from DMVs for E-Verify or RIDE, and that shares DMV information, your 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 picture for one, but also address and other, other information that you give to the DMV for licensing. That's going to share that with DHS and the E-Verify program. Uh, there are memoranda of understanding with the Next Generation Identification Program at the FBI, where states are agreeing to share the facial images that they that they have at the DMV and other biometrics, including fingerprints, uh, with the FBI for a, a national database of identity information. Uh, these things are separate programs, but they can come together easily because once data is in the same in the same format, uh, it's easy to put together into that national ID database. Where does real ID stand right now? I was warned last year that at some point I my Kentucky driver's license would no longer function. Uh, at the airports in Kentucky and that I'd have to start bringing my passport or get something better uh, than a Kentucky ID. So where does that stand right now and what advice do you have for states that are still weighing whether or not to actually implement real ID? The Department of Homeland Security has consistently pressed states mostly by threatening the uh, the freedom to travel of their residents. And most states have gotten on board in some form with Real ID. Getting on board is an interesting concept in itself because what they've generally done is enough to let DHS take them off the hook for the time being. DHS has a curtailed list of, of uh, items that states have to do in order to be treated as compliant. But full compliance with the Real ID Act includes nationwide information sharing about all drivers, licensees, and ID card holders, whether you have a Real ID compliant license or not. So with states uh, stepping into the Real ID waters now and getting enough compliance to, to get DHS approval, things are looking bad. But before too long, the DHS will come back to states that are now compliant and say, it's time for phase two. In phase two, you share all your database with the entire nation through a network system that we've set up. There are a few states that are, that are uh, preparing to, to be involved in that system. Most states are not, but they're going to come around again to those states and start putting those signs up in the airport saying, hey, that driver's license here is going to no, be no good unless your state opens up its database to the national system. That's the next phase of Real ID, and I suspect it'll go like the last phase did. It'll take longer than the federal policy and what DHS wanted, but they're going to keep marching, marching, marching forward to gather that identity information. What recourse do individuals have? What recourse do state and local governments have to prevent uh, this sort of wholesale delivery of information about all drivers, all ID card holders in their states? 
Individuals have very little recourse. There are some states that have good policies and they can move to those states. New Hampshire is one where if you get a driver's license, you can have the license created with your picture on it and they don't even keep a copy of your picture. That's really neat, although it's a little bit of a challenge if you need to get your license. If you lose your license, you need to get another one. You've got to go right back to the DMV. People should contact their state legislators if they care about this issue and advise their state legislators that they don't have to comply with Real ID. There's a game of chicken that's been going on for all these years since the law uh, creating Real ID passed in 2005. That's where DHS threatens states that aren't in compliance and then backs down as soon as it, the, the temperature gets too hot over and over again. Half a dozen times now, DHS has established deadlines. And the press takes them seriously and state legislators take them seriously and DMV bureaucrats take them seriously. But when push comes to shove, when states do push back, the DHS backs down. States across the country could refuse real ID right now and if they just held together, DHS would cave and the policy would collapse. Now, you mentioned both uh, Kafka and Orwell, but there's an element of this that's Terry Gilliam as well uh, in Brazil – uh, a man is shot and killed by uh, uh, cloaked agents uh, because his name was misspelled in a file. And if you're thinking about a system like E-Verify uh, or a system like the do not fly or cannot fly list that's maintained by the federal government, there's a, a pretty alarming error rate in those systems to begin with. So even if you like this idea as a practical matter, uh, there are problems. I'm a peculiar person in that I like to watch what goes on in airports and then ask people about their experience at TSA. Just when they're at their unhappiest, they get a visit from Jim Harper. And I mean, it doesn't make things much better usually. But I recall with uh, uh, mixed feelings coming across a woman who was clearly getting hassled by the TSA about something. And I let her make her way through. I was traveling that day, of course, myself. And – uh, so you her, don't just hang out at airports? Not most of the time, no. Uh, sh she uh, had an ID that uh, said candy spelled with a Y and her ticket said candy spelled with an I. And this is something that caused TSA to, to give her the third degree and, and so on and so forth. And that illustrates to me some of the ridiculousness of this program. I think the ID program on the on the merits, checking people's IDs because you purportedly have a list of dangerous people against which you're gonna you're gonna compare that list, that doesn't work because dangerous people actually aren't that easy. They don't announce themselves. Uh, the the former president of Cato, Ed Crane, once suggested that we should just have all the terrorists uh, identify themselves as such when they went to get their driver's licenses, and that would take care of the problem. What he was doing was illustrating the absurdity of that identity uh, idea. It doesn't work, and the Kafkaesque, Orwellian, or Gilliam-esque situations that are going to rise over and over again with these systems are quite concerning, and rightfully so. Jim Harper is author of the new Cato paper, The New National ID, available today at Cato.org. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 